early uh, and get it done. Not get it done, but I don't want to. Um, I don't want it to seem too long for you guys, and so I'll start kind of quickly. We're going through the book of John. Uh, we're in John 7, and uh, I feel you know led by this, the Holy Spirit to stay in this book and keep going. So we're gonna uh, kind of go at it, you know, uh, until God leads me to another book or a different topic. But uh, I explained last week about the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you know they're all very similar because it's a synopsis. You guys know what the word synopsis means? It's like a, it's basically a like a kind of like a, a synopsis. You know, like like a like a summary of the ministry of Jesus Christ, right? And so um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all kind of seem similar. And so a long time ago, people used to think that Matthew was like the first book written. It was the most important book written. And that um, all the other books kind of like, like they, they thought Mark was the least important because it was the shortest. So they, they kind of thought that Mark was like a Cliff Notes. Remember Cliff Notes in high, in like high school? You have the book and then you have Cliff Notes, which are like a, a this condensed summary of the book. People used to cheat by just by reading the, the Cliff Notes. I did that. Um, you read the cliff notes, you just get the gist of the book, right? So people thought that Mark was kind of like the cliff notes, but uh, there's recently in 19th century, there's been a change in thinking and they believe, and most theologians believe that Mark came first. So Mark was the first book written, and then Luke and, um, and Matthew had Mark to draw from as they wrote. So it's like it kind of was the other way around where there was this Mark and he, he wrote this book and then everybody else kind of, took that book and took their experiences and their recollections and created. So that's why Matthew and Luke actually seem a lot longer than the book of Mark. But when you look at the book of John, it's very different. It's extremely different. And, you know, there is no similarities in the timeline and in the chronology, like the chronological order, because it's actually a personal story. It's a personal recollection of John's time with Jesus Christ. It was more of this... You know, it was more, like John walked with Christ. He, he was there with him, and, and, you know, he was one of Jesus' favorite uh, disciples. And so it's like a personal story of Jesus Christ. And what happens in the book of John is that there's parts of John where he'll devote like a huge major chunk of the book for like a few weeks or like just a month. He'll use like six six chapters to talk about just like the course of like a month. And then he'll leave out like long chunks of Jesus' ministry, right? Like like months or even a year. And so when you read chapter seven, this is what happened. It says after this, right? Well, in the beginning of chapter seven, it says after this. Well, what is this? Is what happened in chapter six? So in what happened in chapter six to John was very important. Right? It was very important. And then there's actually a six-month break between the book of, I mean, chapter six and chapter seven, and John doesn't record any of that. He just leaves it out. And so when we get to chapter 7, we, we kind of have this understanding that there's something very important happen um, that actually links 6 and 7 together. Um, and, you know, it was something that was truly worthy of being remembered and recorded. And we see the, how it ties in with chapter 6 and chapter 7, kind of ties it together. You know, in chapter 6, he does this, like, crazy miracle. Thousands are fed. You know, like, thousands of people are are following him they're like you know they want to know what he's he's about and he gathers this like this big group of people and then he drops like a bomb you know like like you gather all these people and then you, and then the natural thing would be to like kind of 
teach them and lead them in this way for them to even follow more. And then he gathers all these people, and then he literally just drops a bomb on them, right? He tells them, like, hey, you guys, you guys have had your fill. You guys, you know, have eaten the bread that was multiplied. You guys had your fill. Um, but, and, but he calls them to a deeper level of commitment. He really does call them, call the, like the followers of Jesus to a deeper level of commitment. He's like, you guys had your fill of bread, and that's why you're following me. But if you really want to truly know me, if you really want to know the words of eternal life, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. I preached on this last week. And this, like, people were just like, what the heck is this guy talking about? It really was for them, like, like... Right when he when he said that, a lot of them probably thought this is a crazy person. Right? He's a crazy person, and then the, and it's, the Bible says that you know a lot of the disciples that were following Jesus stopped following him when after he drops his bomb. But what he's doing is calling them into a deeper level of commitment. He's like, hey, like to follow me isn't just to like get what you want. And then, and this is going to be like one of the main points of this sermon that I'm going to talk today on chapter seven because he, all of these people were following them, him for for a reason. Like they wanted to get something from Jesus, but he calls them to this deep level of commitment. Is like, hey, following me is 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 about taking me in and surrendering to to me in, in lordship. In essence, like eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a lot of them can't follow, and so. We have chapter 7, you know, six month passes, and then we have John chapter 7, and we're going to start with uh, verse 1 of John chapter 7. It says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast. For my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, when you continue to read uh, chapter 7, you, you realize that Jesus does, he does go up to Jerusalem. He just doesn't go with everybody else, right? His brothers, you know, his followers kind of like go up to Judea to, to the feast. But then Jesus, he kind of waits and then he goes and he kind of goes in secret. He kind of goes kind of, um, you know, not so that everybody can see. Now, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles in the Hebrew, to the Hebrew people, is one of the three very important feasts that they would have in the, the Jewish calendar. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. And it, it was a pilgrimage feast, meaning that uh, Jews from all around would, would gather. They would make a pilgrimage from where they are. Maybe they're in Galilee. Maybe they're far away. And they would make a pilgrimage. They would you know, take a donkey or walk all the way back to Jerusalem to have this feast once a year. The three uh, pilgrimage feasts were uh, Passover, celebrating the night that God passed over the Hebrews' families with the blood of the Passover lamb over their doorposts. You, know, you guys know that story out of Exodus. And then uh, Pentecost was the feast celebrating the giving of the Torah or the giving of the Pentateuch uh, to um, 
the, the to Moses and, and the Israelites in Mount Sinai. And then there's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles commemorating the time that Israel wandered in the wilderness living in tents or booths uh, and God providing for their needs. And during this feast, Jews from all around, they would take, make this pilgrimage to, to, to Jerusalem to basically do camping. Who likes camping here? I know, I know Ted really likes camping, right? I, lo- I like camping. I don't know if Mina likes camping, but in Korea we have glamping. So maybe we can do that one day. But it's ba- it was basically camping. They would come out, they would make these tents or these booths, and then they would sleep outside um, and, and eat and celebrate in their tents and the, or their booths. And they would tell stories about how God, how faithful he was in the wilderness. And it was, it was, one, of the, it was one of the joyous feasts of the, of the Jewish calendar. It, like, whereas like the, the you know, Passover was very solemn, it was very like, you know, reverence. You know, uh, the Feast of Ruth was, was like Christmas. It was like a celebration, right? Of, of, it was like a joyous feast. And people would look forward to this feast because it was basically camping, right? Kids, I, I did this study, and they said that Jewish, like the Hebrew kids would love the, the Feast of Booths most because they get to sleep outside, and their tents were, they, were, they had to be made so that there was actually a, 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 like a, a spot in the roof of the tent that would look out at the stars. So they, they were actually allowed to sleep outside, look at the stars, and look at God's creation, and, and, and talk about how great God was uh, while in their time in the wilderness. So it was a celebration and so this feast would bring Jews from all around, um, all around this, you know, into the city of Jerusalem. They would be, this would be the optimum crowd, right? This would be the optimum crowd. So Jesus, like, for him to do anything. So his brothers tell him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see your works, that you're doing for no one works in secrets. If he seeks to be known openly, if, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. And I find this fascinating. It says that not even his brothers believed in him. According to the Bible, Jesus had four half-brothers, right? Um, and he also had some sisters. Because Matthew 13, 55 to 56, it says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters here with us? Now, where did this man get all these things? Is, is the Pharisees talking about like, hey, we know this guy. Right? This, this, we know his family. Now, he's not like, you know, he's, he's nothing important. He's the son of a carpenter. And we know, you know, his mom, Mary, you know, all the little, you know, the little kids that used to run around the house, you know, making a mess. We know this guy. But it shows you that Jesus had four half-brothers. They're half-brothers because... Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born in the Virgin Mary. So, you know, Joseph was not his real biological father. So they grew up with him, these brothers, right? They grew up with him. They spent time with him. They walked with him. They were even, you know, in his ministry. And they saw the miracles. They saw the signs that he performed. And yet John says not even his brothers believed in him. Well, we know eventually that they will believe in him that they, their minds and their hearts will eventually be changed. And it's actually a wonderful sign of the, resu- of the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't believe him then, but eventually they would. And James, which is one of Jesus' brothers, would go on and write the epistle of James, and he would eventually refer to his brother as Lord and Messiah. Judas, it's not Judas Iscariot. It's, Judas was a very common name back then. Judas 
who, who was also a brother of, of James, which is a half-brother of Jesus, he would go on to write the book of Jude. Right? Jude is a shorter version of the, of the name Judas. So there's this like radical change in these brothers' lives and in, in their perspective of their older brother. Right? I, ha- I don't have brothers, but I have two boys, Ethan and Ezra. You guys know them, right? And even at their age now, I know that there will never be a day where Ezra or Ethan looks at his brother and says, you are my Lord, right? That just will not ever happen, right? S- within siblings, who has a brother? You, you have a brother. Ted, would you ever one day look to your brother and say, Lord and Master, right? That will never happen. That will never happen unless they witnessed the resurrected Christ. Unless they were like, he actually did it. Right? He actually is the real deal. We, we know how familiarity is good, but it also breeds contempt. You guys heard of that saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Especially within the family context, right? These brothers are like, hey, mom's been telling us that, that Jesus is special for so long, right? But he's just Jesus, right? He's just that goody two-shoes that, like, you know, does nothing wrong, right? He's just, they, probably, they might have had these resentment towards him or, or something, but, but they just saw him. And, it, and it, it says that, you know, they didn't believe in him until they saw him hang on a cross and die. And then three days later, they see him face to face, and that changed them. This is, this is a sign of the resurrection, and then, and Mary also had this conundrum as well. That Mary, right? The angels come to Mary and tells her, "Hey, you're you're gonna, you're gonna have a son." He's like, "Well, I'm not. I'm never. I've never had sex. I don't know how that's gonna happen. You're gonna have a son. You know, he's gonna be the savior of the world. He's gonna be the Messiah, right? Um, you, you, you know, in your stomach there will be the Son of God in you, right? But he didn't come as the Son of God. He didn't come." I'm, I'm glad he didn't. He didn't come as this, like, man, triumphant warrior, right? He came as a little baby, right? Imagine you have this interaction with this angel, like, oh, you're going to have a... And then even though you, know, you have this virgin birth, you give birth to a baby. He's not a magical baby. He doesn't have superpowers. He can't change his own diapers, right? Like, he can't just, like, oh, psh, it's gone, right? Like, she had to change, like, clean him, wash him. He's just a baby, like... Yeah, like AJ will know, AJ's having a boy, woo! Or Shine is having a boy, woo! Right? Well, when Shine's, when AJ's baby's born, right, he's just a baby, right? He has to take care of him. You got like, they're like so helpless, right? Even if you know, you remember how helpless infants, they're like, they can't do anything, right? And so Mary has this baby, and he's like, oh, he's gonna be the savior of the world. He's gonna be, he's gonna be the king of kings. He's gonna be the Messiah. But then he's just a baby, and then you see this baby grow up. And yeah, he's a he's a, he's special, right? You know, he's he's you can tell that he's gifted in certain areas. Yay, Sean! Congratulations! Welcome to the two boy family. Yeah, it's very fun. So Mary has this, you know, like has this like 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 calling from God, saying like, "Hey, you're gonna give birth to the the Messiah." But then, but you just see this kid grow up. Imagine Jesus in, when he's a, when he's in puberty, right? And he's just like this is a little adolescent. He's like, like how is this guy gonna become the king of the Jews, right? Like how is this kid like? And, he, and in Jesus and Mary, as Jesus gets older and older and older, and they're at this wedding, and then and then she's like, she she kind of puts him to the test. She's like, hey, they're out of wine. Do something about it, 
He's like, do something. She's like, do something. You have to do something. I've been waiting for 30 years to see the promise that I was giving. Do something. And then Jesus responds, woman. He can do that because he's God. Right? He can say that to his mom. Woman. Right? My hour has not yet come. But Jesus, but she's like, she goes on and says, like, everybody tell him, like, do what he tells you to do. And then he ultimately turns water into wine. It's like the first miracle recorded in the book of John. Because she needed a sign, right? She needed a sign for the promise that God had made her. And here, the brothers of Jesus, they also needed a sign. You see, they were following Jesus. They were anticipating whether or not he was the real deal. Imagine growing up all your life saying, like, hey, your brother, your mom's like, your brother's special. He's going to become great. He's going to be a great man. He's going to be the savior of the world. He's going to become the Messiah, right? He's going to be the king of kings, right? But it says that they still didn't believe him. But they wanted to. They wanted to believe him. Because at, at this point, everyone that followed Jesus thought he would be a political king. They, didn't, they, didn't ex- they had no concept in their mind of what like a true Messiah would actually look like. What they saw and what they expected was him to be another David, to lead the nation of Israel out of the oppressive rule of the Romans, to reestablish the kingdom of Israel like God meant it to be. Right? Remember in America, make America great again. Well, it's like make, is- make Israel great again. Right? They thought that they were going to get a-, a-, a king, a political king that would get the Romans off their backs. And his followers thought that when, they, when this actually happened, that they would fall on the right side of history and become important, powerful people. Because Jesus, as he's arrested, you know, before Jesus is arrested, he's trying to tell them, tell his disciples, like, hey, I'm going to die and I'm going to be sacrificed. You know, my body is your, it, it, you know, like, this bread is like my body that's going to be like, you know, broken for you. And this, this wine is the blood that I will shed, you know, for, for, your, for your, you know, salvation. And in the midst of this, the disciples are arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're like, hey, it's not you. Like, John, what do you mean John, right? Like, they're arguing about who's going to be greater in the kingdom. And they still didn't get it. Even as Jesus, in the book of Acts, uh, chapter 1, Jesus had resurrected from the dead, right? He's, he's, he's taught them for like, you know, days upon days. And then now he's about to ascend into heaven. And like they're at this moment where everybody's gathered and then Jesus is about to go up to heaven. He says, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They're like, are you going to do it now? Everyone was expecting and anticipating a political king. And Jesus tells them, it's not the time. It's not for you to know the times. Today, I want to talk about God's time versus the world's time. Now, we read earlier, Jesus' brothers tell him, leave here and go to Judea and show himself to the disciples. Do these things in front of important people. Do these things in front of people that, like, make a difference because they really didn't believe in him and they thought that, like, you know, like, if he can do this in front of these important people, maybe they'll, like, start to believe him and then they might actually make him king. You know, go and, and, and show yourself to the world. And then Jesus says, my time has not yet come. But he says, your time is always here. You know, we can look at time in different ways. We look at time as something that flows, right? Like water flows, right? The passage of time. I woke up at 8 this morning, and time passed, and now it's 
250, right? That's the passage of time. The Greek has a word for this called chronos, right? It's the, the, the passing of time. That's where we get the word chronological, right? Like, you know, based on time. And we also look at time as a moment in time, a specific point in time, right? I, I've started classes, and I'm sure, Ted, you understand because you're taking seminary classes. Like, when an assignment is due, it's due exactly at one point in time. And all my professors are saying, 11.59, like May 17th, 11.59, Pacific Standard Time is the point. That's when the assignment is due, right? So that's the point. It, that's like a, a, a moment in time. We were all born at one moment in time, right? Some long ago, some, you know, not so long ago. But, but we were, we're born at a specific date, and, and we continue to celebrate that as our birthday. Molly's birthday was a couple of days ago. Happy birthday, Molly. Right? So this, we, we say we, we look at time in these ways, a, a flowing of time, but we also look at time as like a one moment in time. But there's another way to look at time, and it's we look at time as life. Time is in essence life. As time passes by, our lives continue to pass by. There is no separation of time and life. You know that? There's a show that Mina likes to watch. It's called Manifest. Who, who, I, I watched the first episode with her, and I was like, this show is corny. right? So I stopped. But she loves it. She loves the show. It's like it's very dramatic for her. But it's about a plane that disappears for seven years. They take off, and all of a sudden disappears. And then seven years later, that plane lands, and everybody is exactly the same age that they were seven years ago. The world had gone on, right? But then they're exactly, it's as if they took off and landed, and, the, and they're like, it was seven years later. Right? There's this twins. One of them is on the plane, one of them is not, right? So the one on the plane is still like a 10-year-old boy. But then his, his twin sister, who was not on the plane, that lived out the seven years, she's like about to go to college, right? It's like, it's crazy. That can't happen because it's a TV show, right? And, but it, it's true that in our lives, there is no separation of time and life. There is no separation. We can't separate our lives from time. And when you look at our time on this earth, it's really short. Just like our lives on here is really short. It goes by quickly. Time goes by quickly. As I get older, I, I realize, man, time goes by really quickly. And in essence, my life is going by really quickly. And how we view time is very important. What timeline we are on is very important. Imagine you you're take a trip somewhere, right, a different time zone, but you, and your flight back is at 7 a.m. Your, your watch and your phone is still all set on Korea time, right? And, and eventually you're either not going to be on time or you're going to be like a day early, you know? You have what time, like what timeline and what time zone that we're on is very important. And when we read this passage, we see two timelines that's at work here. The brothers of Jesus are on one timeline and Jesus is on a completely other timeline. In essence, in essence the brothers of Jesus are on the world's time. They're working with logic and how this work will work according to the times of the world. They've been anticipating Jesus to become king of Israel, so they tell him, go, go to Jerusalem, show yourself to the world. Don't be out here in Galilee where nobody matters. Go to Judea, go to Jerusalem. Go at the Feast of the 
of booths, right? So everybody's going to be there. All around, Jews from all around are going to be there. Go and show yourself to them. Go and show yourself to the world. The brother's advice shows the motivation behind their timing. Go, show yourself to the world so that they can see who you are. And you can be what you're meant to be. You can go become king. And we can be the king's brothers. They were on the world's timeline. And they were driven by the world, the motives of the world. But Jesus tells them that he's not on this timeline with them. He's on God's timeline. He's on God's time and his life, his actions, his purpose, and his will all come together under God's time. He says, my time has not yet come, but yours will always be here, always be, is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify what is that works that its works are evil he's saying my time has a purpose and it isn't to follow the timing of this world as a matter of fact it's to go against the times of this world and ultimately they'll hate me because i'm here to point out the evil ways that they're in jesus is pointing out the fact that his time has a purpose his time has a will and i told you the greeks word for time was chronos but there's another different word that the Greeks have for time and it's called kairos and kairos isn't just the passing of time it's actually not the passing of time but kairos is more about the purpose of time it's pointing to an opportune time defined as opportune or seasonable time the right time a limited period of time to what brings what to what time brings the state of the times, the things and events of the time. You can see that as just a, a passing of time, or you can see it as time, as kairos. See time as an opportunity. And Jesus is saying, the time that I'm living my life under is vastly different than yours. And you can go up right now, and they're not, they'll just leave you alone. But if I go up right now, Right, they're going to hate me. Because what drives my time isn't the will of the world, but it's the will of God. And the will of God tells them that their ways are evil. Right? How, what they're doing is evil. And that's exactly what happened. When Jesus' time was ultimately up, what happened? They hung him to a cross. They killed him. But in his death and his resurrection comes life right? for us. For all the ones that we put our... Faith in Him. And I want to ask you today, what time are you living under? Whose time are you living under? Are you living under the timeline of this world or are you living under the timeline of God? Because living under the timeline of this world is actually really easy. And Jesus said it. He said, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Following the timeline that you're following, it will always be here. It will be easy. And it's easy to base our time, our lives, on the timeline of this world. All you have to do is follow your flesh. All you have to do is follow after the things that the world says you need. Go after what your flesh says. You should have this in your life. Go after this because you need it. You're in your 30s. You need this in your life. Go after that. That's, that's, you need that. That's what's good. 
It's the right time for you to have that in your life. It will bring you pleasure. It will bring you comfort. Go after that. The world tells us that as long as we're comfortable and that we're enjoying life and we have pleasures, it's all good. The time is now. Carpe diem. Who remembers that saying? Carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Seize. I ran out of breath. Seize the day, right? But living under God's timeline is very different. It requires devotion. It requires dedication. It requires sacrifice. It requires submission, service. And ultimately, it's not easy. And in order for us to be on God's timeline, I have some points for you today. Number one, in order for us to be under God's timeline, we have to be under His Lordship. I want to point something out to you. This is just in the book of John. John 5.30. It says, I can do nothing by myself. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.30, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 8.28, So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the, the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I that I do nothing on my own, but speak exactly what the Father has taught me. John 12:49. I have not spoken on my own, but the Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. John 12:50. And I know that his commands lead to eternal life, so I speak exactly what the Father has told me to say. John 14:10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The world, I say to you, I do not speak on my own, Instead, it is the Father dwelling in me, performing His works. Like, redundancy much, right? Jesus says this over and over. This is just in the book of John. Just in the book of John. He says over and over and over. You know how Jesus says, truly, truly? Right? Who, whoever thought, who thought that was kind of weird when He says, truly, truly? Well, in the Hebrews, when you repeat something, you repeat it because it's really important. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, it's like, this is really, really important, right? That's basically what he's saying. And so when he Jesus says over and over again, I'm here, and I do, and I speak nothing on my own accord, nothing out of my will, but only what the Father in heaven says. He was in submission to the Father. Being in submission to the Father was very important for Jesus. And how that looks for us is having, like, you know, how that looks for us is for us to be in submission to Jesus Christ and submission to Him. How time looks for us has everything to do with who directs our time. And for us to be under the timeline of God, Jesus has to be Lord. We have to surrender control over to Him. We have to be in submission to the Word of God. Are you basing your life on what you see in the world, on Instagram, you know, on Facebook, on TV, Netflix? Or are you basing your life on the Word of God to guide you and lead you? Are you being led by the Spirit of God? Or are you being led by the flesh? Are you allowing the flesh to dictate how you live? How your time flows is dictated on who is ruling in your life. So one thing is if we want to be under God's timeline, we have to be under God's Lordship. Next is we all we have to be under his wisdom. The brothers of Jesus actually gives him really good advice. Go where people matter for you to do these things because that's what's going to make you famous. They're going to make you king. But you see, they were guiding him based on worldly wisdom. 
the same brother of Jesus that gives him this advice goes on to write James 3 and he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? But his good conduct, let him know his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and evil, vile, every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right? So here's James, who's, who's before he actually sees the resurrected Christ, is like giving out this worldly wisdom. Come on, go get be famous, right? Like go and like you know like you know you're sitting on a gold mine. You can multiply food. You can you can like do miracles. Right? Go to where like the lights are bright and shiny. It actually was Jerusalem during the Feast of Booth. They would light these huge like columns of of like fire all around the temple so that the temple actually was shiny. Right? They did that to represent like God leading them by you know by by you know the the cloud by day and the fire by night, right? So when when they would see, it would be like like it would be like Las Vegas, in in in, there, in back then terms, right? Vegas is a lot brighter, right? You can see Vegas from space at night, right? But you 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 look at the you know this is like this is where it's, it's the glitzy glamour of Jerusalem, right? This is where all of the important people hang out, right? This is this is where you need to go. He gives them this worldly advice, and then after he actually experiences the risen Jesus Christ, he's like, hey. That's not the wisdom that comes from heaven. Right? The wisdom that comes from heaven. That was Jesus. He's describing Jesus here. Right? And, and, and we, have to under, we have to be under the wisdom of God. We have to seek out the wisdom of God. We have to seek out the wisdom that comes from above. In order for us to be on His timeline, to be walking in His timeline, we have to be walking under the wisdom of God. And here's the thing, wisdom isn't just information we have in our heads, but true wisdom is, is true wisdom when it's applied in our lives, when it's walked out in our lives. What wisdom are you allowing to lead and guide your life? Are you under the wisdom of the world, which is ultimately leads to sin and death and destruction, or are you under the wisdom of the one that created the heavens and the earth and knew you before the foundation of the world? before you were formed in your mother's bellies. Here's the thing. A lot of times, worldly wisdom and God's wisdom can seem really similar. They may both be good. Jesus, go show yourself to the world so that you can be famous and king of Israel. You You can raise up the nation of Israel again. You can be a kingdom again so that we can worship God without the Romans on our backs. We can restore Israel to what it's meant to be. Right? We, that sounds good. That even sounds holy. That sounds like good wisdom, but it wasn't God's wisdom. God doesn't want us to seek good. He wants us to seek God. And the only way we're going to be able to differentiate if it's, if it's good wisdom or wisdom from God is through relationship. Through relationship. He speaks to us. He leads us. He guides us in the spirit and in his word. And we call out to him for wisdom and he gives it to us. That's the wisdom 
that comes from above. And a lot of times, people are going to start to give give their advice. You know, advice, everybody wants to give advice, right? They're going to start to give advice, wisdom, 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 right? And all these different wisdoms, and a lot of them sound good. Your parents might give you advice, and you're like, man, that sounds like good advice, right? But then it might not be God. It might not be God's wisdom. And so how do you differentiate that? Well, it's relationship. You're not going to be able to find out without relationship. When you actually know Jesus Christ, not just know of Him, but you know you truly know Him, you're going to recognize His voice. You're going to understand His wisdom. So we have to be under His wisdom. Next, we have to be under His culture. We're always under some kind of culture. There's always some culture influencing and guiding us in our actions. As a Korean-American living in Korean, there are moments and there are times when I am so American. Right. When my rights are stepped on, I'm like, how dare you, right? How dare they, right? Like, That's my property, right? Like, they, I've had moments like that where I just, I feel just American in me, just like, dun, 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 like, you know, like I got to, I got to defend my liberties and my rights, right? And then there's moments where I'm like really, really Korean, like, oh, yeah, I'm like bowing, you know, like, and like, like I'm in the car and I bow and I talk, even though he can't hear me, like, oh, like, he can't hear me. The windows are closed. He's like, way down the chair. I'd be like, oh, yeah, no, no, you know? Like, like culture will drive us in so many of the, how we live and, and the actions that we take. And what culture is influencing your life? Are you following the world's culture? Are you looking at life based on what the world deems appropriate, what the world deems acceptable, what the world deems righteous? Because those lines are beginning to blur. What the church would adamantly deem as sin years ago. These days, a lot of churches, especially in America, not so much, right? Not so much. Premarital sex, ah, let's not talk about that. Because like most of our, our teens are doing it. And just, ah, just, let's just talk about different things, right? Let's, let's move on. It's The lines are getting blurred. Cultures are mixing. Truth is being watered down. And I want to ask you, what culture are you under? Are you the, under the God, God's culture based on what God deems appropriate, what God deems righteous, what God deems is truth? Or is the influence of the world and the times of the world affecting your culture and your understanding of truth? You know, back in the times of Jesus, this is exactly what happened. God gave the Israelites the law, and there was this written tradition, right? the Word of God, right? wrote down, passed down through generation, right? You know, Genesis. There'd be somebody, I don't know if they did this or wrote it, and I don't know if they had paper, but they wrote there's a written tradition, right? We get passed down. And this is like hundreds and hundreds of years. America is how old is America? It's like two hundred and something years old, right? Two hundred and forty, fifty years old, right? This is like generations upon generations, right? We're talking about thousands, I mean like like literally like a thousand years, right? And so these things, written tradition is being passed down, you know, and like, because if you look at it from the last prophet, you know, Malachi, all the way to when John the Baptist ministry comes on scene, there's 400 years of silence, right? That's 400 years of history. That's like almost double the length of the American history. You know, Abraham, what's his name? Like Abraham Lincoln existed like less than 200 years ago, right? That's, it's, in our minds, this seems like forever, right? 
But then think about how long like this tradition is being passed down. So there's a written tradition being passed down upon generation upon generation. There's people, they didn't have Xerox machine. They would people copy Genesis, you know, from the beginning. Lamentations. You know, like like all of these like, these things, they're writing it down, you know, like like hands cramping, but I you misspelled that, start over, get a new paper, right? They didn't know erasers, right? This is, this is a written tradition, but then alongside that came the oral tradition, right? The oral tradition was what every rabbi or like some teacher would start, like how they would start to interpret certain things started to just kind of go a little bit more skewed than what the written tradition was. Right? And, then, and they started to weigh heavily on the oral tradition at one point more than the written tradition, right? the written word of God. And then that's what happened. When Jesus comes in the scene, these Pharisees and these Sadducees and all of the scribes have no idea what the Word of God means. They just have whatever they've interpreted the Word of God to be. And Jesus is saying, what does He call them? He's like, you guys are a brood of vipers. You guys are like dead men's tombs, right? Because their culture had ultimately twisted the Word of God. They were no longer understanding what God was saying, but they were trying to, like, they were allowing the culture of the times, the culture of the world, to start to skew and start to twist and start to move the Word of God away from what the actual truth of God. And it had, culture has so much power in the way that we look at God and the way that we look at people. To the point where Jesus comes and he doesn't recognize. He's like, who are you people? You guys are supposed to, to know God. You guys are supposed to be the people of God. What have you become? They were filled with so much legalism and self-righteousness. What culture are you under? Are you under the culture of God? Are you under the culture of God getting it from the word of God? You know, in, in, in relationship, in, in process, in, in communication with God, or are you allowing the culture of this world to twist, to water down, to, to, to lead astray your understanding of what truth is? So we have to be under the culture of God. We have to find our culture in God and in the Word of God. Next, we have to be under His purpose. Jesus knew his purpose, and his life was lived out for that purpose. His purpose was the will of God. Jesus' life was short, right? His time on earth was, it was defined by this one moment in time. And when you look at why Jesus started his ministry in his 30s, don't, isn't that weird? Like why wait 30 years for you to start your ministry, right? And only go a few years and then die, right? Why not marry, put Jesus in the gifted program? We had a gifted program at, the, at your school, right? Anybody? A gifted program? I was in there for one day. Because I was Asian. They put me in there. And they're like, wait, you're not gifted. Let's put you back in the regular, right? And get him into the gifted program. Have him study under the greatest rabbis of the time. Some of the rabbis were super famous and respected. And they would study you know, under him so that they can grow, in, not just in knowledge, but in reputation. If Jesus, at, at the age of like 13, when he became a man, according to a Jew, he could have gone to a, like a rabbinical school. He could have gone to like a rabbi, studied under them, so that not only does he grow in knowledge, but he also starts to grow in reputation. So that by the time it's time for him to become a teacher, the 
people will respect him. The people will receive him more easily. Why not send him to school, right? Why not have him study? Why wait 30 years, him working as a carpenter, and all of a sudden, ta-da, I'm Jesus, right? Why in this way? It's because Jesus did not come to be respected and served. He didn't come to become famous and well-liked. He came to declare that the Father had sent him. That it wasn't a rabbi or a rabbinical school. But it was to point out that the Father had sent him to rebuke sin, to point out sin, and ultimately be martyred for mankind. Not just the Jews, but to save mankind, to save the world, right? His time was dependent on his purpose. And I want to tell you today that you have a purpose. And you're not going to find that purpose out in the world. From the world's cultures, from the world's wisdom, you will know your purpose only in relationship to God. Because your purpose is relationship. And your time on earth, your timeline, as you're 93 years old, or however old you are, and you're sitting in that rocking chair, I don't know why, 90, by the time you're 93, you're probably not going to have rocking chairs, right? They're all in your massage chairs. Uh, heated and all that. And you look back at your life, you're going to be able to say that your purpose wasn't just something that you did, but you, you'll say, my timeline was my purpose. There was no wasted moments. Because even when I thought I was wasting my, my life and wasting my time, God was with me and ultimately became my purpose. Because I was in relationship with Him. You know, that's how you find purpose. You guys think that your purpose is something that you're supposed to do. My purpose is something that you're supposed to have. No, your purpose is the timeline. That's, the, that's your purpose. The timeline that you are under God, that is your purpose. And you might think, hey, I haven't reached, I'm not where I'm supposed to be. But you know what? You have to look at it from where God looks at it. God looks at it. He already knows the beginning from the end. He knows the effort. He knows who you are because He knows every moment of your life. And that is what you're going to surrender to God. Say, God, I, can, I don't just give you this moment in my life. I don't just give you this thing that I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my timeline. I'm going to give you my life in relationship with you that even though I'm here, you're with me. Even though I'm here, you're with me. And as I go through my life, I'm going to look back and say, hey, my purpose in my life was not something that I did. My purpose was the life that I lived. It's the timeline that I was under when I was in relationship with him, when I sought after him, when he sought after me, when I encountered him when I rebelled against Him, when I found Him, when I did good things, when I did bad things, when I was in sin, when I, when I was repentant. In every moment of your life, as you are in relationship with God, that becomes your purpose. And you'll look back and say, my time was my purpose. Because it comes from relationship. Is your purpose under God? Or is your purpose... Are you trying to find your purpose out there in the world? Because let me guarantee, I guarantee you, you're going to be able to find something. I just started school, and there's like this, all this drive that I have. Right? One of my professors is like, I love working with older people because they're very motivated, and like they want to succeed, and they want to, you know, they've wasted enough time. And so they, you know, like, that's how I feel, man. 
you got me, right? You, you, you understand me, right? You know, and so I, I'm having this like this desire and like, oh, I want to, I want to get an A, and I want, you know, but at the at the end, that's not my purpose, right? My purpose ultimately isn't to stand up here and preach to you guys. My purpose isn't ultimately to be able to be a pastor and and have, and have a church. And, and, you know, raise it. My purpose is to be in relationship with God. And when I look at God, because He looks at you, not just in moments, but He looks at you from the beginning to the end. He looks at you your whole life as your timeline. And he's, like, he's saying, hey, is your timeline under me or is your timeline, are you going after things in the world? See, our, our purpose has to be under Him. And last, I'm going to close with this, is we have to be under His kairos. His divine timing. Do you trust His timing? I want to end this with, end with this, because with God, a lot of times it's not so much what or how, but when, right? And sometimes this can be the hardest part of following Jesus. Like, when God, right? How many, how many of you said that in your life? When God, God when, right? Ethan is getting to an age where he's starting to understand time. And we'll get into a car, and he's like, uh, how long will it take? And then me, being the jerk that I am, I'd be like, it's going to take 10 hours. And he goes, ah! <laughs> like that, right? And then Mina, being the loving mother that she is, is like, oh, we're at Shinsuke. It's going to take 10 minutes, right? And then I'll be like, hey, hey, hey. And then there will be times where we're actually driving to Seoul, and then he'll say, how long will it take? And I'll say, it's going to take six hours. I'm honest, right? I want to be straight with him. So it's going to take six hours. And although it's going to be difficult, he can deal with it. Right? But it's not knowing that can be the hardest part. And I don't know if you've noticed, but God is really not into telling us when, right? Have you noticed? He's really not. He's not. That's not what he's about. <clears throat> We're like, why God? Don't you love me? Why won't you tell me when, right? But he's not into telling us when. But what does the Bible say is the only thing that can please God? What does it say? Faith, right? Faith is the only thing that can please God. And this is where faith comes in. We look to God's character. We look to His goodness. We look to His love. We look to who He is, His righteousness, His holiness. And we wait on God's kairos, His his timing. Because we know that in God's timing, there is the fullness of His plans and His will and also His grace to do what and why. I don't know that many of you are waiting for the wind, and it's hard. But as you trust in the Lord, there is grace for you to trust in His timing. And know in your heart that His timing is the best timing for those who are committed to His purpose in His will. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You might not know when, right? And you might not know how or you might not know what, but you know the who. And you have to hold fast to the who. The who makes all the difference. Because he loves you. He cares for you. His timing is truly perfect. Wait for his timing. Under his timeline, and and you'll find your purpose in everything that he has you as you continue to wait and hold fast to him and you, and you seek him with all your heart you're going to find yourself looking back on your timeline and say hey that was my purpose that was his plan that was his will that's all
Let's all pray.